Hello, everyone. My name is Joe Alfred, and this is another episode of the Hydrogen and Electric Power Podcast. Today, I have my co-host, Christina McChesney, here, as well as Tom Mierswa. Thanks, Joe. Tom, thank you for being with us on the podcast. It's really nice having you with us today. Let me quickly introduce you to our listeners first. Dr. Thomas Mirzva has a distinguished academic career, including his time as an adjunct faculty member at the University of Maryland, where he has taught courses such as strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship. He is an advisor for the University of Maryland's Industrial Partnership Program and its Incubators Technology Advancement Program. Tom is a principal and founder of the Fountainhead Group, a team of specialists who conduct innovation audits and assist private and public sectors in new product development and operational improvement. He formerly served as VP and COO of the Onyx Group, a technology company that develops software applications for master planning and management. In addition to that, he serves on the advisory board of several Maryland businesses. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Joe will kick us off from here. Tom, the first question is for you. You've had an eclectic career with experience in government, academia, and the private sector. How do those lenses inform your opinion of the decarbonization efforts in both the transportation and utility sectors? Actually, Joe, uh, I would add even another perspective to that. I would look at this, what's going on uh, today uh, from the perspective of being a consumer, you know, which everybody would uh, would fit into, but uh, my uh, my EPA career was uh, primarily a regulator and a, a you know somebody who looked at government policy. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur, and I'm also uh, I'm an academic uh, as a part of that. But I'm also an advocate for a good environmental uh, policy. So uh, I, I can look at that question through those four lenses, and I think I'll try and uh, address those in in a sequence here. Uh, so from a consumer perspective, right now, you know, I'm, I'm probably a, an old line uh, consumer. I'm still driving in a, a gasoline automobile, uh, not driving a hybrid, although many of my friends uh, are driving hybrids. So I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned in that regard. But as a consumer, the next car that I buy is certainly going to be a, a more environmentally friendly car. But I, as a consumer, I think about the context in which people are buying cars. And there is a big force, a big trend, and you know, to go to, let's say, even electric at this point. And so the question then begins to be, you know, for, for what Ally Power is looking at, what is the time frame for the emergence of availability for hydrogen-powered vehicles? And my my guess is that that's going to be more than a couple of years away, but it's things are happening fast. Uh, one of the things that I teach in, in the courses that I teach at Maryland is a technology sequence and a technology wave of adoption. And the pace of adoption of new technologies recently has accelerated. And, and I would see, you know, I'm hopeful to see the pace at which some of these new technologies like hydrogen technology for automobiles is going to be adopted at a much faster pace than 
than what we have seen in the past. And uh, so I'm hopeful there. And as a consumer, I'm thinking, uh, you know, the life span of my car is uh, nearing its uh, its end state. And uh, so I'll probably go to some hybrid vehicle or maybe maybe even some hydrogen vehicle if it, if it uh, shows up in the marketplace soon enough. So from a consumer perspective, I would say that even people who are anxious to entertain an environmentally sensitive vehicle are are hopeful, but uh, you know they're still still waiting for the reality of availability of something like a hydrogen vehicle. Now, the other perspective that I would look at, and it, you know, it's it's my EPA perspective, which is uh, both partly an advocate and partly a regulator. And that was a number of years ago. Uh, even electrical vehicles were not on the scene when I was at EPA. And so, you know, there was a, a way in which to reduce the impact of gasoline-powered vehicles. And that wasn't that long ago. And so you can begin to see how the technology is changing and the opportunities for doing things that are less environmentally impactful are, are changing. And those opportunities are being presented much quicker on the scene now than they ever have been. And so what I found, uh, the leverage of what at least the agency that I was in, the leverage that uh, that agency had was relatively limited to overall impacts of emission control. And so there was one focus on gasoline automobiles and, and the idea that we wouldn't have to worry about those kind of emissions in the future wasn't even on the horizon at that time. And so I just kind of coming back to the notion of the pace of technology change and the hopefulness of how quickly some of these things are going to come on board, I would say what's going to happen at EPA and other agencies that are regulating things like automobile transit and truck transit are going to change dramatically. Now, the other part of that formula is mass transit. And, you know, we uh, the options were let's have much more mass transit. This was uh, 15, 20 years ago. Let's have much more mass transit as a trade-off to automobiles. And I think that that belief is still there, but I think that uh, that's going to diminish in my mind. It's going to diminish because the technology's opportunities are going to put that aside. And, and we're going to have more freedom of individual vehicles with less pollution. And so that I think is gonna be one of the things that's gonna change the, the policy outlook of public agencies. A third perspective that I had on this is as an entrepreneur. And the question gets to be, how can entrepreneurs play a role in the entry and the, the breakthrough of a new technology like hydrogen fuel vehicles. And entrepreneurs are probably small-time players. The bigger companies are the bigger players, uh, like Toyota and some of the other companies that are advocating uh, and moving forward in a, in a fairly fast pace. And so the question gets to be, how do entrepreneurs get to play in that game? And my sense is that entrepreneurs get to play in that game by the, the facilities that get built to support hydrogen vehicles, and so, and electrical vehicles too, for that matter. And you can see that even now 
there is an indication of what's happening in uh, shopping centers and in what are currently filling stations where, you know, there are going to be places to refuel your electrical vehicle. And so that same process is going to happen. And I think entrepreneurs can play a role in that. And they may be small businesses or they may be people who advocate the development of facilities that can uh, serve as refueling of uh, hydrogen vehicles and electric vehicles. So that's, that's number three. And then the fourth perspective on this is as an advocate. I think the, the game has changed. You know, uh, you know, we go back to the advent of uh, uh, the Rachel Carson uh, uh, paradigm shift about the environment. And, and I think there was a, an awakening at that point. And that was, you know, 40 years ago. And I think many, many groups are advocating for cleaner air, better vehicles. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of interest groups and lobbying groups and advocacy groups out there that are pushing for better solutions. So I think from my perspective, those people need to be, I think, informed by the science, but also informed about what the cost benefits are to, uh, you know, to consumers and, and to the population at large. So all of these things are beginning to happen. And so it might even be you know, hopefully a perfect storm where uh, these things all kind of come together and government and interest groups and consumers and advocates are aligned at accepting uh, a new technology and a new product. So that's, uh, that's my, my four perspective viewpoint on, on your question. Well, Tom, that is a, a really great additional lens that my question certainly left out because we are all consumers. And even the experts uh, who are advocating for certain types of technology have to drive a certain technology or they use electricity in, in, their, in their houses. So that is certainly something that should not be forgotten in the discussion. And by our consumer behavior, we can really change the environment as well as the market in which we interact. Uh, our, our dollars are you know, one type of way that we vote. So how we choose to spend our dollars, our hard-earned dollars, does make a real big difference in the marketplace. So, so thank you for, for including that in your response. Lots of great insights, Tom. Thank you, Joe, for the comment. And I actually have the second question for you. Joe, with governments seeking answers to where to store their carbon dioxide, where do you think private industry should play a role in the market? And how should they be compensated by the consumer or the governmental authority? Thank you, Christina, for the question. And this is a really interesting and hot topic that is swirling around both in government as well as private industry circles is where are we going to store all the carbon dioxide that we emit? and we emit carbon dioxide from several different sources. So there's a lot of different technologies that can be used and are at play for recycling that carbon dioxide, reusing it in some other form or fashion, or actually utilizing it to perform better industrial processes that are already in, ongoing. And I'll, I'll start with the last one first. So one example of carbon capture utilization 
by private industry is actually oil companies that are capturing the carbon dioxide that is emitted and then using that carbon dioxide and pumping it into oil wells that are already existing and producing oil to generate more oil, to, to actually extract the maximum amount of oil from that well. They also get a tax benefit from the government, at least in the United States, uh, for actually doing this process because they are capturing the carbon dioxide and putting it into a well for storage purposes and also generating more of the substance that which allows us to transport ourselves every single day. So long-term, the carbon dioxide stays in that well. And in the short term, the oil company gets not just the benefit of being able to produce more oil, they also get a tax benefit for using that carbon dioxide in that way. So th that is one way that current companies are utilizing carbon dioxide to recycle and, and reuse uh, for that purpose. Other companies are using uh, direct air capture and they like this type of carbon dioxide storage because it's not just from an emitting source right now, you're also capturing carbon dioxide that's been produced 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, right? So, so there's no time frame by which you're, you're actually capturing the, those carbon emissions. You're just taking air and uh, utilizing a chemical process, sequester that carbon dioxide and then store it underground. So, so there are several direct air capture companies that are beginning to grow their operations. They've started small, as all prototypes do, and then they will, will grow from there. But I think the, the most important way that we can actually utilize carbon dioxide is with a, a reuse economy model, where we take that carbon dioxide and we actually transform it into usable fuels and usable alcohol, usable products, usable transportation materials. So, so some of these examples are uh, carbon fibers. There are several uh, renewable fuels that can be uh, generated from carbon dioxide. And this is really where the trillion dollar industry is going to be coming to the fore. And it's a very needed industry and it's very nascent level right now. So much more work needs to be done, much more entrepreneurship needs to be devoted to this area. And we are extremely excited that people are starting to look at carbon dioxide, not just as an emission, but as a resource. And how they should be compensated in terms of a, versus a, a governmental authority with a tax benefit or by the consumer is, is really going to be how that entrepreneurship enters into the market. Because if you can reuse that carbon dioxide and turn it into something that a consumer will pay for, then you will create that business model, which allows for that transfer of wealth where we can actually utilize that carbon dioxide. And it becomes not a detriment to the earth and the planet, but also we can think of it as an additional resource that there's enough carbon dioxide out there in the atmosphere that we now have and can extract value from that. So it, it can, it's like our carbon dioxide bank that's up in the atmosphere instead of our carbon dioxide emissions, which is causing you know, climate change. So shifting the thinking just a little bit can really open up a lot of doors in terms of creating value for society.
Tom, while at the EPA, you designated a certain amount of CO2 production per kilowatt hour of electricity produced. Is that formula still relevant today as we shift away from fossil fuel thermal power plants? Well, obviously the world has changed. And we're, I, I think the attitude very early on in the EPA days was that uh, the solution to pollution was dilution. And so you diluted the intensity of a pollutant. And that was, that was the management approach to a lot of things. And then it, it evolved from dilution to prevention, but many of the environmental management approaches that uh, have been with us over the years have been to basically reduce the impact on the environment by diluting that impact. And so what we're faced with now, I mean, I, I think you mentioned the notion of a carbon dioxide bank. I mean, I don't know that it exists as, as a, quite as a bank, but I mean, it's a source. And how can we mine that source? And how can we take that source and apply some technologies that translate what was deemed to be you know, some kind of pollution into something that has value and utility? I think one of the examples that you gave with the producing oil and then have, you know, piping that CO2 down into, into an oil well to help produce the pressure. You know, I would view that as a short-term solution, but it is a solution. It's the kind of solution that begins to not try and eliminate all of the pollution in the way in which it has been produced, but rather find a way to apply it and produce value in some other form. And so, you know, CO2, I think, is, is a, right now the biggest concern. And right now, all of the policies are around reducing CO2. We ought to be thinking about ways we can translate the, the quantities that we have of CO2 into something that has value for society. I mean, that, that's kind of an idealistic point of view, but I think that is the kind of basic research that we probably need to begin to look at is how are we going to address the solutions of producing co2 that you know we can we can move from co2 uh, production and, and pollution to electric vehicles to hydrogen vehicles to alternative vehicles that don't produce co2 but we've got this bank of co2 what are we going to do with it and i think you know, some breakthroughs, I think, need to happen, and, and people need to be looking at these kinds of things. So the researchers out there in industry and in academia and research institutions, and, and probably even, you know, this is something that uh, the federal government ought to be sponsoring, research that would begin to look at ways in which we can reuse and reapply or retranslate CO2 into something that has value. And we don't know what the answer to that is, but until we start looking at it, we're never going to find out. I really like that the thought process, the, the methodology of the solution to pollution is dilution. Yeah. But we are approaching in certain areas of the country the fact that you just can't dilute anymore right. because there's just so much economic activity, so much trucks, so, so much, you know, carbon dioxide that's being put into the sky that we there were running out of the dilution effect. So that that's the uh, 
key factor that governments are, are looking at in terms of how do we accelerate the economic activity while maintaining air quality for our citizens. So Christina, then the next question is for you. Governments, private companies, and nonprofits will all have to tackle the problems associated with climate change. How do you see the role of nonprofits access to green bonds helping the transfer to zero emission forms of energy? Absolutely, yes. Before I start answering the question, I think I'd like to give some background to what the green bond actually is. Climate bonds, also called green bonds, are a financial security where consumers loan money to someone. It's similar to a regular bond. However, in this case, the loan is explicitly designated for investments in climate change solutions. Like a normal bond, a green bond can be bought or sold. But unlike regular bonds, the bond issuer guarantees the buyer that the money loaned will be used only for climate-friendly companies or initiatives to help the environment. This means that the bond issuer also needs to monitor the recipients more closely, not just to evaluate how likely they are to pay back the loan, but also whether or not the company is actually green or is actually working on climate issues. It's already a huge market with about $1 trillion market valuation and 95% average annual growth since 2007. Why this concerns nonprofits? With the help of green bonds, nonprofits can get the money they need from investors. So it's a money making tool. For investors, it's also an extra level of monitoring. If a nonprofit specializes in green energy or something relevant, then a bond issuer can benefit from their expertise to make sure the money goes to the right causes. This is a short explanation. We could devote an entire episode of this podcast to green bonds, but I think that's a good crash course for the purposes of today's episode. That said, green bonds are an important tool, but not without a few extra difficulties. Joe, to tackle a problem as complicated as climate change, you need as many tools and approaches as possible. What are the hurdles and milestones necessary to bring these new solutions to the marketplace? So that's a really great question, Christina, and, and it really gets to the heart of entrepreneurship and trying out new ideas and how hard it is to get new ideas out into the marketplace because it's not just a matter of knowing the science. It, it, it's not just a matter of getting the requisite intellectual property protections in place. It's also a matter of you have to go out into the world and you have to persuade other people that this new idea is the way forward. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of doing it. And it's a new way to solve the problem. But it's not just about having a new idea in order to fix climate change, because you could have the best idea in the world to fix climate change and it could automatically fix everything. But in order for it to actually become from an idea into a, a viable product, you actually need capital in order to produce the necessary product. You have to have some form of structure around it or else you, you will not be invested in. And this really goes to the, the process 
by which a new idea turns into a product. There are a lot of different hurdles <laughs> that you have to go through and a lot of different benchmarks and milestones that you have to accomplish in order for you to persuade the right people to invest money into your company that this is actual business that yes it does have this effect that it's going to reduce the impact of climate change but you also have to prove out the business model you have to search out customers you have to have those discovery phone calls you have to prove to those people who are going to back you that you have done the necessary time and research and talk to enough people that there is a viable business strategy for how to bring this into the marketplace. So there are a lot of ways that this could go wrong. And there are a lot of companies that don't make it because they don't do enough research. They don't talk to enough people. They don't get the necessary groundwork and framework in place and it all falls down. And that's unfortunate, especially in an industry where you're, you're trying to reduce carbon emissions, which we all see as a good thing. However, we also see as a good thing, the fact that there are customers transacting within a business model and that there are employees that are being employed in order to transact that product for those customers. So it's really important to note that a lot of time, thought, and energy may go into an idea that never gets commercialized. And those thoughts and ideas that do get commercialized, they're the ones that are very persistent and will not stop, even in the face of consistent pressure to stop. And I think that if the purpose of your organization is such that it is worth going through all those hurdles, then you will make that impact eventually. And that moment in time where you will get to the marketplace will happen. So that is really the story of entrepreneurship just in general, but bringing entrepreneurship into the realm of climate change, it is important to be persistent. If you know that your solution adds to the mix of solutions that will get us to a better energy mix, a better climate, in the future. Tom, uh, we're going to leave the last question for you. Markets are chaotic and messy in periods of transition. What changes do you see occurring five years from now in the energy and utility sector? Well, that's a pretty challenging question. You know, as an investor, uh, I could look at it from one perspective. As a consumer, I could look at it from another perspective. You know, as a, let's say, a, an environmental advocate, I could look at it from another perspective. But I, I, one of the trends that I think are happening, that are beginning to happen, uh, people are looking for more control, more independence of control of their own forms of utility. I think the idea of solar panels on roofs are a source of the, a sense of independence that people have to create their own sources, if there, if there are going to be power outages in the grid, uh, they still have ways in which they have electricity. For automobiles, there is a certainly an awakening to the value of the uh, available resources as opposed to, let's say, a limited resource in terms of uh, fossil fuels. 
And so, so the idea that people are going to move to be encouraged to move to using a, a, a utility resource and a power resource that is readily available, I think going to be an awakening in terms of the marketplace and an awakening uh, in terms of the value of, of what that produces for the population and the environment. I think, you know, just kind of coming back to the changes that I see occurring in the next five years, I think we're going to see a movement to what I would call utility independence that produces energy that is possibly solar using a resource that is not able to be easily depleted. We might say, well, can hydrogen be easily depleted? Well, you know, we can't see the possibility for that now. Maybe at some point it would be. But I think right now, I think we would move away from the paradigm of using a depletable resource to the paradigm of using a resource that is not readily depletable. And so I think that that change in the marketplace is going to happen, and that's going to change investment outlooks. It's going to change what energy companies offer and produce. And, you know, I, I think that's going to change the investment a perspective of a lot of people who are investing as regular investors, let's say, as, as consumer investors, you know, the everyday investors are going to be more attracted to that kind of investment in the marketplace, which is going to drive newer uh, applications of reusable energy. That's great, Tom. Thank you so much. I think generally speaking, we see are in a period of transition with both the utility as well as the transportation sector. And there are positive outlooks in how much things are changing in both government, nonprofit sector, as well as in entrepreneurship and in the private sector. And all of these different entities are talking with each other, are working together, and there should be this process and this progress. And it's not all going to occur overnight, but it is going to occur. So I think that it's important to view this transition in a positive outlook for both consumers, private industry, governments, as well as the nonprofit sector. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of the Hydrogen and Electric Power podcast with your hosts, Joseph Alfred and Christina McChesney. Thanks and have a great rest of your day.